Hey TC family, we're back again and we're excited to be here with you today. We just want to thank you for tuning in and we pray that you are blessed and filled by today's message. Before we kick it off, we want to remind you of a valuable resource and that is our 24-7 helpline. You can call anytime, anywhere, day or night and a Teen Challenge staff member will be on the other line waiting for your call. That number is 888-520-0620. And if you or a loved one needs prayer or help with addiction, you can call that same number at 888-520-0620. We're back again with our Spiritual Emphasis 2022 series. And we're excited because we have an incredible message from Jonathan Laurie. He's the son of Pastor Greg Laurie. And we pray that you are encouraged and blessed by this message. God bless you today, my friends. Hey, well, good evening, everybody. How amazing is this? It's been so fun to be here with you guys and hearing you all sing your hearts out to our Savior, Jesus, and it's just been amazing. Thank you, Pastor Ron, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Jonathan Laurie, and I get to share the message with you tonight as we continue in our Spiritual Emphasis Week. How cool has this been? Hey, if you've got a Bible, um, do me a favor. Open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You know, I got to know you Teen Challenge guys and girls when I was teaching Sunday nights for a few years. Um, you would show up in your vans, and at first I was like, who the heck are these people showing up in these vans? I figured it out pretty quick. You guys were the ones that loved to worship. You guys are the ones that brought the noise and the excitement <laughs> and the passion. And so when Michael Miracle asked me if I would be willing to speak, I was so honored to get to come and, and share with you tonight here at Harvest. Um, first of all, uh, there's a couple things that, that went into the decision for me to speak tonight. Number one, uh, the commute made it real simple for me. You see, I keep my office hours here at the church about 100 feet from this room right now, so that made it real easy for me. Uh, number two, I heard about the worship team that was going to be here, and that's, this is a Harvest worship team where I'm a pastor at, so that was a slam dunk. I knew that was going to be good. But third, and most of all of these equations, uh, these things that uh, I decided to come and, and speak here for, is because I truly believe in what Teen Challenge does. I really do. I believe in what Teen Challenge does. I have met and gotten to know a number of graduates from your ministry who have been truly transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, thanks to the wonderful men and women at Teen Challenge. One of those guys that's been transformed, his name is Ryan Lawrence, and he is now a pastor on our staff. He is a graduate from your Teen Challenge program. Another guy is a member of my small group that I get to lead, and his name is Matt Tatham, another wonderful transformed individual. God's done an amazing work in his life. Both of them, both of these guys are filled with faith, they're filled with excitement. But what I've seen in both of these men that has really struck me is that they are extremely disciplined in their relationship with God. They are really disciplined in their relationship with God. And that's not something you just pick up. Discipline is something you have to practice. Discipline is something that you have to really lean into. And that is something that Teen Challenge is helping instill in you guys and continuing to instill in you guys. And so all that to say, thank you, Michael Miracle. Thank you, Pastor Ron Brown and the whole Teen Challenge family for having me tonight to share with all of you here for Spiritual Emphasis Week. Um, it's great to have you guys all on campus here. Uh, and I would just love to encourage you, if you don't have somewhere to go for church on Sunday morning, hey, Harvest is arms wide open to the Teen Challenge family. Any of you that want to come and say hello on Sunday mornings, come and check us out. My dad preaches every Sunday morning, Pastor Greg Laurie, for the past 49 years he's been preaching, which is amazing, an amazing legacy of faith that he has laid. And uh, we have something in common. You guys are 11 years ahead of us. I just heard Pastor Ron share 60 years next year the Teen Challenge has been going on. How amazing is that? Your Diamond Jubilee, incredible. And what God has done over the last 60 years for you guys, 49 years for us, it'll be 50 years next year for Harvest and so. Absolutely incredible. Yep. Some time ago, I heard a preacher ask a question that really stuck with me. And he said, what would you like to have written on your tombstone? What would you like to have written on your tombstone? The epitaph, the words that are written in stone that summarize your life in just a few words. Kind of a humbling question to think about, isn't it? Like, oh, man. I don't want to think about that yet. i got so much life to live, right? It's kind of freaky to think about that. What is going to be put on my tombstone? 
This idea that our entire lives will be summarized on a three foot by 18 inch slab of granite. It's actually a really good way to reverse engineer your life. To think about your life today from the end perspective and to begin to live your life in pursuit of those goals. What do you want to be said about your life when you die? And then today, make the choices that is going to help you accomplish those goals. This idea that our entire lives will be summarized, it's, it's crazy. Crazy to think that that is going to happen, but someday we will die. The uh, statistics are quite impressive. One out of every one person's will die. We are all going to die someday, no matter how rich you are, or how poor you are, uh, whatever your life was. Um, it is the great equalizer. I read a, a couple of interesting uh, tombstones that people had inscriptions on and what they wanted them uh, to say. Merv Griffin, who is a TV host and producer, some of you know who he is. He was a game show host, uh, TV mogul, really. He had written on his tombstone. He was famous for saying after his TV show came to a commercial break, he'll say, we'll be right back after these messages, folks. Well, on his tombstone, he had written, I will not be right back after this message. <laughs> That's pretty good. Mel Blanc, some of you know who he is. He's the guy that voiced ev like every character you could think of in Looney Tunes, right? All the characters, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Pepe Le Pew, and many, many others. Um, you know his voice because he, he did all those characters. And at the end of every Looney Tunes episode, Porky Pig came on. He said, idiot, idiot, idiot. That's all, folks, right? Well, when Mel Blanc died, that's what he wanted on his tombstone. That's all, folks. That's literally what his tombstone says. <laughs> Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci, um, an amazing painter. He painted the Mona Lisa. He painted the Last Supper. He was an amazing scientist and inventor, uh, someone who was really ahead of his time. His last words on his deathbed, he said, I have offended God and I have offended mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have perfectionist much? Wow. I mean, this is a guy that's done some of the most amazing known works of art of all time. And he said that he felt that his work did not uh, come to the level that he had hoped that it would. Oskar Schindler, a German industrialist during World War II and a member of the Nazi party, spent his fortune employing Jews in his factories so that he could save them from the Holocaust. He was a Nazi party, but he was not a Nazi, clearly. On his tombstone, which is in Jerusalem, the only member of a Nazi party to be, have a tombstone in Jerusalem, uh, it says this, Oscar Schindler, the unforgettable lifesaver of 1,200 hunted Jews. This man made a difference. Today, as the, uh, the descendants of Schindler Jews, as they refer to themselves as, is over 8,500 from those 1,200 that he initially rescued and saved because he employed them. 8,500 people. What do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want to be said about your life? What do you want the summation of it to be? Moses thought of this idea first when he said in Genesis 90, 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Help us to think of the span of our life so that we could have a heart of wisdom. Martin Luther translated that verse as, Lord, teach us to think about death so that we might learn how to live. Let me say that again. He said, Lord, teach us to think about death so that we might learn how to live. Tonight in our time together, I want to look at the final words of the Apostle Paul to the believers in Ephesus and summarizing his time with them. This was his last statements to them. It's found in the book of Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at together. And these are things that the Apostle Paul said that I believe he would want written on his tombstone. Kind of summarizing his time with them. His goals, his heart, his beliefs, his character. And these are things that I would want written on my tombstone as well. And I believe all of us here would be honored to have these things written about us. There's four things that Paul talks about. And there are things that he would have wanted on his tombstone. But Paul did not have a tombstone. Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome. And scholars say that his body was discarded and most likely eaten by dogs. Paul, he was not honored in his death by Caesar. He may have been dishonored by him. But Paul's true king, Jesus, would have welcomed him into heaven with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Caesar dishonored Paul, but the only person that truly mattered, Jesus, 
honored Paul when he came into his kingdom. And so he shared these four things he would have wanted on his tombstone. And so let's look together at Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. But when we landed at Miletus, he, being Paul, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. And when they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me that in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for the finishing work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. That is the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Verse 25, and now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink back from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in, Uh, among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they were embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he said that he would never see them again. And then they escorted him down to the ship. Let's end there. Heavenly Father, as we read about this man, Paul, your servant, we're so thankful for his witness. We're thankful for the work that he did in the first century church, his boldness, Lord, his faithfulness, his commitment to the gospel. Lord, help us to be men and women like the apostle Paul, like your servant, Paul, like your son, Jesus, that we would have hearts for all of mankind, that we would want to live lives that reflect the forgiveness that you have shown to us. Help us to do that. Fill us with your spirit as we look at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says? Amen. 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 Number one, the first thing that Paul mentioned about himself that he would want on his tombstone and I would want on my tombstone and you would want to be said about you and written on your tombstone. Number one, I have been faithful to what Jesus told me to do. Come on. I have been faithful to what Jesus told me to do. Verse 24 Paul says, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for the finishing work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What he's saying is, my single focus in life is to do what Jesus told me to do. My single focus in life is what Jesus has called me to. When I think of obedience, I think of the Apostle Paul. There's a lot of other amazing characters in the New Testament that were obedient They were faithful. They endured some stuff, no question. But man, Paul, he was a guy that was just a step above everybody else, it seems. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked three different times that we know about for sure, maybe four. He was attacked. He was beaten with rods. He was mocked. He was robbed. He was abandoned. He was arrested unjustly. He was falsely accused. He endured all of these things with joy because he was doing it for Jesus. Paul was faithful to what Jesus had called him to. He was faithful to what Jesus had called him to. And at the end of the day, that is all that we are called to do, is to be faithful to what Jesus has given us, to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to. And my question to you tonight is, what has Jesus called you to do? What has Jesus called you to do? Some people, they feel like they're responsible for everything. 
They feel like Jesus is calling them to change the world and to change everybody around them, right? You're responsible to fix your friends. You're responsible to help change their minds about drugs and alcohol and the way that they're living and to convince them that this is the better way to life. Yeah, you feel like it's your personal responsibility. You've got that burden. Some of you feel like it's your responsibility for your children to turn out absolutely perfect, that they would never turn wayward left or to the right or do anything sinful or anything wrong. They never tell a lie. You feel like it's your personal responsibility. You feel like it's your responsibility to fix homelessness, right? You go driving down the street and you see the poverty, you see the devastation, you see what addiction does to people and your broken heart just leads you to feel like, I've got to do something, I've got to change all of these things. Maybe you feel like it's your personal responsibility to lead every member of your family, your friends, your coworkers, anybody who will listen to Christ, right? You carry around the weight of the world on your shoulders and no matter what you do, it's not enough. You feel that Jesus is calling you to do all of these things. And there's other people on the other side of the spectrum. Some people feel responsibility for absolutely nothing, including their own decisions. They never stop to even think about the fact that they've been given responsibility by God himself. Listen, we are only responsible to what Jesus has called us to. We are only responsible for the things he has put right in front of us. And we need to be faithful to those things. Um, I have three kids Uh, I have a 9-year-old son, Christopher. I have a 12-year-old daughter, Alexandra. And I have a 17-year-old daughter, Riley. Please pray for me. Um, (laughs) Having a 17-year-old daughter is a a wild experience, right? Going through all of that, it's amazing. And I love them so much. But, man, it's it's a wild season for sure. Now, my 12-year-old daughter, Allie... She is basically a mom junior. I don't know where she got it from, man. She just had this right out of the womb. She was just always looking after everybody, always taking care of her personal stuff, making sure that she had her little purse going with her. She always was so aware of everything around her. And now as a 12-year-old, she totally moms my 9-year-old son around it, just bosses him around, tells him what to do, change your clothes, you look dirty, go wash your hands before dinner, brush your teeth before you go to bed, Put your shoes on because we're going out to dinner and I don't want you to look like you live in the wilderness. She tells him all this stuff. I'm like, you're 12 years old. You're more responsible than I am. But the other day, my daughter was so on my son's case as we were on our way out the door. She's telling him, get ready for school. Get your stuff all together. That as we got to school, she realized, dad, I forgot my backpack. I'm like, Allie, you're so focused on telling your brother what he needs to do that you forgot what you need to do. This is a good example of worrying about other things and other people's issues, but missing what's right in front of us. We are responsible to what Jesus has called us to. For me, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a friend. I'm a pastor. I'm a witness for Jesus. I'm a giver. These are areas I can be faithful in and I can be a light in. What has God called you to be? What has he called you to do. Maybe right now in this season, he hasn't called you to be a husband or a father. You're single. You're just going through this program. You're right in the midst of it. Listen, he has called you to be faithful in this season that you are in right now. Don't worry about the season that's coming three, four, five years from now. Be faithful in the season that you are in in this moment. We know scripture is filled with areas that we've been called to be faithful and obedient in. Here's a couple of quick ones for you if you want to write these down. Number one, Uh, We've been called to abstain from sexual immorality. We've been called to abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. We've been called to abstain from drunkenness and being under the influence of anything, Ephesians 5 tells us. We've been called to give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We've been called to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, Micah 6.8. We are called, those who suffer according to God's will, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4.19. Listen, we aren't responsible for saving the world. We aren't responsible for fixing the drug problem in America or fixing our parents' marriage or reconciling the Republican and Democratic parties, right? We are responsible to what God has put right in front of us and being faithful in it. Number two, I told the truth. Paul says, I told the truth. We would want this on our tombstone, right? We told the truth. Paul actually says this twice in Acts 20, 20, 
uh, in Acts 20, 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I love that. He was bold. He never shrank back. Ooh, this part's going to offend some people. This part's going to bother some people. Nope, he didn't shrink back. He was bold. He was clear. Paul was not afraid to tell people how it was. You know, there's nothing like having someone tell you how things are, is it? <laughs> did you ever have that friend that was not afraid to tell you the bitter truth? They had that person in, you know, your life that was willing to tell you exactly what they thought, exactly what was going on in your life, maybe for better and for worse. Um, I was at the beach a little while ago, and my daughter, Allie, who was like seven at the time, we were sitting there, we're hanging out, I'm sitting in the lounge chair, and my dad comes up to me, or sorry, my, my daughter comes up to me, and she says this. She says, Dad, you're not really that fat. <laughs> great, great way to start off a conversation. She says, Dad, you're not that fat. She says, you're only fat when you take your shirt off. Come on, kid. Hey, out of mouth of babes, right? But Paul did not shrink back from declaring the absolute truth about heaven and hell and Jesus. Some of you may have struggled and may still struggle with telling the truth. You may have been in an environment that conditioned you to lie about something rather than telling the truth because of the consequences. You were taught to fear if you were to actually share, yeah, I did do that. I, I did skip school. I did steal that thing. Or I did, you know, this wrong thing. You were taught that maybe if you were to lie and you were to cover your tracks, that would be a better thing. Listen, we all know that that's just going to make things worse for us. It becomes easier and easier to tell a little lie, then a bigger lie, then a bigger lie. And then next thing you know, your whole life is filled with lies. You can't even keep track of what's going on. Listen, Jesus is truth. He is absolute truth. And we are called to be men and women of truth. Paul did not shrink back from telling the truth of the gospel. He was unafraid to proclaim the truth, even if it meant persecution, even if it meant abuse, even if it meant beatings and slander. Um, I remember the first time I got pulled over as a Christian for speeding uh, by a police officer. He pulled me over, you know, and I was actually excited the first time I got pulled over. Because every time I got pulled over when I wasn't a Christian, terrified. I didn't know what was in my car. I forgot what might be, you know, sitting in the back seat, hidden somewhere. I had a friend in the car. He might have left something in there. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was terrified. The first time I got pulled over as a Christian, I was like excited. He pulled me over. He says, you know how fast you're going? Oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. And then sure enough, he brings up the question, is there anything in your car that I should be concerned about? Anything in here? And I was like, absolutely not officer. In fact, you want to take a look around? I was excited. I was excited. Because I knew I could tell the truth. I knew I didn't have anything to hide. I knew I could have a clear conscience and it was a wonderful thing to feel. Paul was unafraid because he proclaimed the truth because he knew it was absolute truth. Even in the midst, even in the face of abuse and beatings and persecution and, and even um, harming him himself. He proclaimed the gospel. But he did this. He told the truth in love. He did it in love. Some of you here are winners of souls. You love to lead people to Jesus. You love to talk about what Jesus has done for you. You love to talk about the transformation that can take place when you come to a relationship with him. C.H. Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers today, he says winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. Paul told the truth, but he had tact. He didn't go around saying, hey, the wages of sin is death. You're all going to hell. You've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. You're going to hell. No, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life. Paul told the truth, but he had tact. He did it in love and he did it with tears in his eyes. He says in verse 31, I did not cease to admonish you day and night with tears. Paul did not use persuasive, savvy arguments with fancy PowerPoint presentations, right? He didn't do it with fear tactics and threats. He didn't say, as long as you live in this house, you will believe in God. No, he didn't do that. No, it was with tears that Paul admonished them. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And Paul cared. He cared for these people. He cared for them. He loved them. He shared the gospel. He was long-suffering. Maybe these people, you know, while he was in Ephesus for three years... He would have gotten to know people that came and went, that came into the little village buying food in the little, you know, marketplace where he was maybe selling tents and whatever else. He got to know people. He built relationships. He built bridges. He wasn't there just preaching fire and brimstone from day one. Maybe he was in some cases, but he used 
tact, and he always did it, he said, with tears in his eyes because he loved them and he was terrified of the thought that they could actually be going to hell. He told the truth. He told the truth. Number three, he says, I directed people's attention toward Jesus, not me. I directed people's attention toward Jesus, not me. Verse 19, he says, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. Now, Paul shared his testimony a handful of times, and it was always a bridge to share the gospel. It was always to lay the groundwork to talk about how good Jesus is. There's some amazing testimonies in this room tonight. And we've gotten to hear some of them up on the TV screen and, and hearing some of them shared. And I've gotten to know some of you guys and hearing some of the things that you went through and endured. It's amazing to see what Jesus did. You've got amazing testimonies. Um, I've heard over the years people get up and share their testimonies. And I'll be honest, sometimes people will get up and they'll share their testimony for about 20 minutes. Talking about all the crazy stuff they did. The crazy things they went through. And then they say, yeah, and then I became a Christian. And yep. And now God saved me and that's it. They spend more time talking about what they used to do as opposed to what God has done for them now. We need to make sure we always point to how good Jesus is, how much he has done, it, uh, done for us. I've heard people talk about all the things they gave up for Jesus. People saying, oh, I gave up millions of dollars. I gave up cars. I gave up women and parties and drugs and the whole, everything. I gave it up for the old rugged cross, right? I gave it all up for Jesus. Wow. Hey, you know what? I gave up some stuff too. You heard Pastor Ron mention that my dad's the pastor. Um, I was a prodigal for a number of years. I ran from that identity. I didn't want to be known as the pastor's kid. I didn't want to be known as, as you know, the, the preacher's little kid. I didn't want to be known as that. I wanted my own identity. And so I ran into what the world had to offer. And I'll be honest, um, when I came back to the Lord, I had to give some stuff up too. Yeah, I gave up addiction. I gave up shame. I gave up fear, I gave up loneliness, I gave up anger, and in return, he gave me restoration. He gave me forgiveness, he gave me peace, he gave me community, joy, the hope of heaven. He gave me his grace, he gave me blessings upon blessings. He gave me back what the locusts had eaten away. Scripture tells us that he gives beauty for ashes, strength for fear, gladness for mourning, and peace for despair. Come on. He gives us these things. Yes, talk about how you made a mess of your life, but always make sure you direct people's attention toward Jesus and what he did for you. I always like to tell people, hey, if he did it for me, he can do it for you. If he's done it for me, he can do it for you. And lastly, number four, the Apostle Paul. I finished strong. I finished strong. He says in verse 22, he says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, only that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. He was not fearful of death. He was not fearful of the fact that the Holy Spirit himself told Paul, uh, you need to go to Jerusalem, and while you're going there, you're going to endure hardships. You're going to be facing chains. You're going to be facing beatings. But you know what? That didn't scare Paul away. All Paul wanted to do was be obedient to the charge Jesus gave him. So how can we, like Paul, finish well? How can we, like Paul, say, none of these things move me? If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from Jesus. How can we be like that? How can we finish well? Many people start well, but they don't finish well, do they? They start well, but they don't finish well. They're the one-hit wonders of Christianity, right? They're like Vanilla Ice or Sir Mix-a-Lot, one-hit wonders, right? They start off strong. They start off like a rocket ship. They start off with great energy, even rocket out of the atmosphere, but they don't persevere. They don't persevere. My dad has said, you don't determine the end of your life, I'm sorry, he does say this. He says, you determine the end of your life by the beginning of it. The evening of your life by the morning of it. You decide today where you're going to be 20 years from now by what choices you make and what roads you take. 
I know some of you here tonight, you knew people and even had friends who maybe joined the program and started strong and they thought they would be here with you all the way through, but for whatever reason, they dropped off and they checked out. Listen, I'm going to give you three quick reasons that are usually why people don't finish strong spiritually. Number one, pain. Pain. When a new believer experiences pain for the first time, sometimes they don't know how to handle it. Something difficult happens to them. Temptation, a trial, a test, some adversity, a job loss, a bad diagnosis from from the doctor. Listen, if your faith is so delicate and so fragile that when pain enters your life, you crumble, then you have to ask yourself, what foundation were you building your life on? What foundation did you have your faith built upon? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about the man who built his life upon the rock. And when the wind blew and the floods came and the rain fell, the house did what? It stood strong, right? It stood strong because it was a sure-footed foundation. Jesus said, this man is like the person who hears what I have to say and does it. Here's what I have to say and does it. See, there's obedience involved there. It's not enough just to know the words of Jesus. It's not enough to just have scripture memorized or to have it tattooed on you or to have it on the back of your car or to have a t-shirt that says John 3.16. No, it's got to be in your heart, but you've got to be doing it. You've got to be obedient to it. To contrast it, he points to a man who builds his house upon the sand. And he says, when the floods came and the wind blew and the rain fell, the house came crashing down and great was its fall. You will experience pain. You will experience discouragement and hardship. And the key to enduring these things, Jesus himself tells us, he says, to know the teachings of Jesus and to be obedient to them. To be obedient to them. Number two, the second reason we see people sometimes fall away from the faith, walk away from the Lord. Number two is fatigue. Fatigue. You've endured that kind of pain now for a while, let's say. And you're starting to get the feeling that nobody is maybe even listening to your prayers. It doesn't feel like it once did. You're going through a spiritually dry season and you just don't feel the Lord's presence like you used to. Right? You don't sense his presence like when you first believed. You, you listen to that worship song again. And you sit in the exact same seat in church. And you try and raise your hand at the exact same moment. But you don't get that same feeling that you once did. You don't feel the closeness of the Lord like you once had maybe earlier on in your faith. Listen, emotions come and go. Those experiences happen and sometimes they don't happen. And I love it when they happen. I love it when the Lord comes and I feel his presence and I can just tell that it's so thick you can cut it with a knife. It's wonderful. But you don't know that that's always going to be there. That's not always going to happen. That's not always going to be an option. Emotions come and go. This is where obedience and discipline come in, right? You listen to that worship song. You listen to that same song and you just don't experience it like you once did. Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? It will lead you astray. Listen, here tonight, I see some guys and girls that are pretty yoked out, that are pretty buff, right? Some guys that spend some time at the gym. Let me ask you a question. If you only go to the gym when you feel like it, how often would you go? If you only exercise the times that you really feel the the motivation, the emotional drive to get you in there and lift some weights or to go on that run or get on that bicycle, how often would you do it? Maybe once a week, right? Maybe once a week. It's about discipline. You do it because you know it's good for you. You do it when you don't feel like it. And then how do you feel after you do it when you don't feel like doing it? At the end, you feel great. Oh, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I stuck with my regimen. I'm so glad that I didn't break that routine that I had. You follow Jesus because it's right. You stay close to him. You stay disciplined to him. You stay obedient to him because it's the right thing to do. Listen, the emotions and motivation is great when it comes, but don't be reliant upon it. When you look back at your life in 50 years from now, and you see your faithful marriage to your husband or to your wife, and you see your children, you see your grandchildren, and you see all the people who love you and you've impacted, and you'll think back to those moments that you chose to walk with Jesus and not to burn out and not allow that fatigue to take over, man, you'll be happy. You'll be happy that you chose to stay with him and not to give in to fatigue and not to give in to that. You'll be thankful. And number three, the third reason that we see that is so often the reason 
the people will fall away from the faith. Is divided hearts. Is divided hearts. The cares of this world begin to crowd back in. The old ways of living become tempting again. You want to follow Jesus, but you also love being comfortable. You want to follow Jesus, but you also want this relationship with this non-believing girl or this non-believing guy. You want Jesus, but you also want a little bit of this. You want Jesus, but you also want a little bit of partying, a little bit of porn, a little bit of drugs or alcohol. Listen, nothing will destroy your spiritual life quicker than tolerating an ongoing relationship with sin. Hey, every believer is going to sin. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to trip up. We're all going to make mistakes. But what do we do? We get up and we move forward. And we ask for forgiveness and we move toward Jesus. So what do you want your tombstone to say about you? I stand here tonight and um, this is a very special Bible. Someone actually just gave this to me and it had been misplaced for a while. But this is actually my brother's Bible. It has his name right here on it, Christopher Laurie. And um, it's a very special Bible because 14 years ago this July, my older brother Christopher was killed unexpectedly in an automobile accident. Christopher was one of the closest people that I had to me on this earth. We were separated by 11 years. Uh, he was 11 years older than me. He's my only sibling. And so uh, I saw him almost like a, an uncle, right? An uncle more than a brother. He was so much older than me. I'm like four years old. He's 15. He kicked the crap out of me, right? It's like, so I'm, I always had to be careful around him. So I had big respect for him. But when Christopher went to be with the Lord, he left behind a one-year-old daughter. He left behind a wife who was seven months pregnant. But Christopher, he had been sober and he had been free from drugs for around two years at this point in his life. You see, not all pastors' kids are, are so, you know, <laughs> uh, live such that, that, that perfect life. He was a prodigal too for a number of years. But he'd been walking with the Lord for around two years. He was walking with them. He was plugged in at church. He was actually working here at the church. He was leading a Bible study in his home. He was a full-on new person. But that morning of July 24th, Christopher didn't have an opportunity to go scrub his computers of his internet history. He didn't have an opportunity to go through and make sure he got rid of all the paraphernalia in his home or tidy up his house. No. And what we found is we had to go through Christopher's belongings and begin to put them into a storage container. Was that his private life reflected what the Lord had done in him. There wasn't a trace of his former life to be found. And the CHP, when he was, yeah. He was a transformed person because of what Jesus had done in his life. The California Highway Patrol, because of the case and because he was related to my father and the media got involved, um, the CHP requested a toxicology exam. And that means they go and they, they took a, a blood sample from Christopher um, and they would inspect it for anything that would point to why this accident happened, how it could have happened, etc. And as they requested that toxicology exam, honestly, we probably would have denied if we had been given the option. It wouldn't have changed anything for us. We would have said, no, we don't need you to test it. We don't, need, we don't even care. It doesn't matter. But they didn't give us that option. And they took that blood test. Because it was such a public event, we didn't have a, a say for whatever reason. They drugged the results out for over a year. And in that year of Christopher's passing, it was so hard because we didn't know what was going to be on that test. We didn't know what the media was going to say, how they were going to report it, how they were going to say that, oh, he was a, you know, a bad driver, whatever it might have been. We were, we were fearful of that. We were so stressed and it ate away at us not knowing for sure. But finally, the report came out a year later and they shared that in Christopher's system, there was no drugs, there was no alcohol, there was absolutely nothing in his system. Because Christopher's life had been changed by Jesus. And I want to close with this tonight. The best thing that you can write on your tombstone is what my big brother Christopher has written on his. Christopher David Laurie, 1975 to 2008. Beloved son, brother, husband, father, at home with the Lord. And it says this scripture in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith.
when I heard the news that my brother had gone to be with the Lord, I was in full-blown prodigal mode. I was partying. I was using drugs. Uh, I was lying to everybody around me. But the weird thing was that I still felt like I wanted to be in church. I still wanted to get close to God. I didn't want to completely walk away from him. And to a degree, I think my parents wanted me to still go to church too, right? Like, hey, if you're going to live here, you're still going to go to church. And so what I found was that I was completely miserable. I was living in the world and I was living in the faith. And I had one foot in each world. And what I found was I had too much of the world to be happy in the church. And I had too much of the church to be happy in the world. So here I was, this walking contradiction. I told you that for a number of years... uh, I didn't want to be known as the pastor's son. I didn't want to be known as Greg Laurie's kid. I wanted to have my own identity. And so what did I do? Well, I went into the most cliche church brat thing you can imagine. I went into sex, drugs, partying, all of that stuff. And I found myself miserable. Things went zero to 60 real quick. And I found myself, no longer was I just doing this for fun. Now I was doing it because I had to. Now I'm not going to try and pretend that I'm on the level of some of you guys here and the things that you've gone through. But I did find myself in a place of addiction. I did find myself in a place of loneliness and depression and isolation, not knowing where to turn. The one person I was able to have a conversation with was my older brother, Christopher. As I mentioned, he had now been free from that lifestyle. He had been walking with the Lord. But I knew that he had gone through the same thing that I was going through at that moment. And so one day, Christopher and I were driving home from church and I We were just talking about what was going on and how I was such an idiot and he was being the older brother that he needed to be and kind of kicking my butt a little bit. And he asked me this question. He said, Jonathan, what's it going to take for you to give your life to Christ? What's it going to take? I don't really remember what my answer was, to be honest. I think I kind of blew it off and made up some excuse. Oh, I'm just having fun. I'll get around to it. I want to get back to Jesus. But man, I'm, I'm not being too crazy. I was actually worse off than I even realized. I was worse off than I was leading on. And so on that day, when I came home from work and I got the news that Christopher had gone to be with the Lord, um, immediately his question popped back into my head, what's it going to take? And I went up to my room and I took all my drugs, I took all my paraphernalia, everything, porn, set it on my bed, and I just prayed and I said, you know what, Lord? Uh, I've proven to you and to myself, I can't quit this on my own. I can't get free from this on my own, so I need you to not only take my addiction away, I need to take this desire away as well. Because right now, I want to numb myself. I want to lean into this. And so I prayed, and I asked him to take it from me. And it's been 14 years that God has delivered me from that lifestyle. I've been sober. And like I mentioned, he gives beauty for ashes. He's delivered me from that. He's blessed me. He's given me the life that I always wanted. The girl that I had a crush on in seventh grade, we reconnected, we started dating, we got married, we've got three kids together. God has blessed me. And I want to tell you tonight that if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. And I know there might be some here tonight who are vacillating, right? Maybe you've come into this program and you're like, yeah, I know I need to get here. I'm here because my family encouraged me. I'm here because I have to. I'm here because the judge told me otherwise I'm, I'm going to jail and so I don't, I don't want to go to jail, so I'm here. Hey, listen, however you got here tonight, we're glad that you're here and you're in the right place and you need to be here. And I want to extend to you the same question my brother asked me almost 14 years ago. What's it going to take for you to give your life to Christ? What wake-up call do you need in this life for him to get your attention and for you to realize everything that you've been looking for, everything that you've been hoping for and, and wanting is found in a relationship with him, his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to do that for you. He's done it for so many here tonight. I know that he can do it for you. And so I'm going to invite the band to come out right now. We're going to play a song. And I want to invite you to make a decision to put your faith in Jesus. If you haven't asked him to come into your life, if you haven't asked him to be the Lord and the Savior of your life, I want to invite you to come and make that decision tonight. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness that he extends to us. We're thankful for the new life that he brings. If any man be in Christ, they are an altogether new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Lord, only you can do that for us. All we do is mess things up. You come in and you fix everything. All glory goes to you, Jesus. We're so thankful for that. And while we're here tonight, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're praying, I know that there are some who haven't made a full commitment to Jesus. 
who haven't made him the Lord of your life, who are living with divided hearts. You're trying to serve him. You're trying to follow him, but you're also trying to have this on the side and, oh, maybe you'll manage this a little better next time. Maybe you'll keep things under control. Listen, you need all of Jesus. That's all you need. You need to make a full commitment to him tonight. And so while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're praying together, if that's you and you want to make that decision to put your faith in him, make him the Lord of your life, that your eternal destination would be changed from hell to heaven, would you just raise your hand up wherever you are? God bless you guys. Hands all over the room. God bless you. Amen. You're saying yes to God. You're saying yes to God. You're saying, I want to make him my Lord and Savior. I want to know that when I die, I'll go to heaven. I want to be a new creation. If that's you, just raise your hand up wherever you are. God bless you. Lord, you see these hands. You see the hearts of these men and the hearts of these women. And you know where they're at. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, everyone that Jesus calls, he calls openly and publicly. And if you raise your hand with me just now in that last moment of prayer saying, yes, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask that as the band begins to play, that you would come forward as a public testimony and that you're saying, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm saying yes to God. I'm saying yes to this new creation, this new life. And so as the band plays right now, I'm going to invite you to come forward and when you all come here together, we'll pray and I'll lead you in this prayer to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. So if you want to do that, just come on forward now. You're making a decision to follow him, to make him the Lord of your life. Come on forward and we'll pray together. As the band begins to play, you come now. What's it going to take? What wake-up call is God going to allow in your life so that he can get your attention? You remember the prodigal son? It says that when he came to himself, he turned and he went home. And what did his father do? He ran and met him where, you're at, where he was at. You might think, that, man, I, I need to get a little further in this program. I need to get a little more distance between me and the sins that I used to do. No, listen. Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. You need to come to him now. You need to turn to him and he's going to help you make the changes in your life that you need to make. And so the band's going to continue to play. And if you want to come forward and you want to pray with us, you want to make this public stand, come now as the band plays. Come stand before these people saying, I'm saying yes to Jesus. I'm making a public statement that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. You come now as the band plays. Anybody else? Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come to
Amen. This is amazing. Look at this. These are answer prayers right here. For all of you that have come forward right now, I just want to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance, a prayer of asking Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And so I'm going to lead you in these words, but you need to mean them in your heart. This is you talking to God, not talking to the person next to you or talking to me. This is you talking to your Father in heaven who loves you so much and he wants to hear from you. Just pray these words. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but Jesus is the Savior. He is my Savior who died on the cross for my sin. And I turn from my sin now. And I turn to you from this moment forward. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to walk with you and talk with you and learn from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Amazing. God bless you. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. He has liberated us. He has set the captives free. He has set us free from our sin and from the bondage of sin and death and the grave. And we have the hope of heaven. If any man be in Christ, they're an altogether new creation. Old things become new. Old things are passed away. Thank you, Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing. Why don't we all stand up right now? The band's going to lead us in some more music. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to have uh, some more fun in the coming days. We've got a baptism that we're going to do. We hope to see you guys all there. But for now, let's worship the Lord together. Come on. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've been encouraged and blessed by this message. Did you know that subscribing to this podcast is free? So please subscribe today if you haven't. And be sure to stay tuned for more episodes from Spiritual Emphasis 2022. God bless you today, my friends.